John chapter 12 this morning. The book of John chapter 12. And we're going to be dealing with a word that is a, it's a ten-letter word, but it's kind of like a four-letter word. The word is judgmental. Nobody wants to be called judgmental uh, in our time. It's sort of the, if you're trapped in a conversation and you don't like how it's going, you call the other person judgmental. Stop judging me, you know. Let me do what I want with my life already. And it's sort of like your fire escape. Because people do not want to be labeled judgmental. Judgmental and hateful are kind of close cousins uh, in our time. And we don't mind judgmental when it comes to like a math test. Two plus two is four, not five. And I mean, we don't like getting a question wrong, but we understand it there. But in the moral sphere, how we ought to live our life, do not judge me. It's a very strong sentiment of our time. And yet the odd thing is that while we, in the public sphere, loathe being called judgmental or being labeled judgmental, in the private sphere, we exercise it all the time. In fact, The thought, as I was thinking about this, I was caught by this, of how in the public forum we don't want to be called judgmental, but then uh, I was thinking of all of the, our fascination with rankings, who's, you know, whether it's sports rankings or polls, uh, who's the best, what's the top 40, where things are, we love those things. Critics, this is the age of like the critic or the pundit on television, telling us what we're supposed to think. I mean, there's an in, there are entire multiple sports channels of critics who tell you what to think about various things, not to mention the political sphere. I thought about social media. I thought social media is a wildly, it's like a judgmental playground. You don't like what someone says? You just... You say whatever, whatever you want on social media. You know, I mean, some of the the most unkind things that I've ever I've ever read are sort of in the uh, the social media environment. Or if you read a news article and you, there's the place for the comments after the news article, you realize there are some hate-filled people. So we're not we don't want to be seen as judgmental, but sort of in our private sphere, we can be pretty judgmental. I wonder sometimes, like in social media or on TV, you know, whether it has to sort of, we sweat out all of the things we're not allowed to do anymore in the public setting. You know, we, we want to see who gets voted off the island. We want to see who gets voted out of the kitchen, who gets fired, right? <laughs> who gets kicked off the dance show. I mean, did you realize how many of those shows are built around judgments? We entertain ourselves with artificial judgments. It's really quite surprising. Because it's like a 10-letter, four-letter word for us. And there are some of the the obvious expressions. I mean, I I won't continue to dwell on the idea, but we see it, and it's sort of the most expressed forms are like Little League soccer or baseball where everybody gets a trophy. 
right? Everybody's a winner. A lot of studies that have been done about the post uh, or the millennial generation remarks that they are a generation that requires constant affirmation and does not do well with criticism because they've been raised in an environment where we do not publicly judge one another. Now, I'm telling you all of this because the subject of the text, excuse me, the subject of the text this morning is judge. Jesus as judge. Our need to make a decision about what he said and the consequences of our decision. That's what this is kind of hanging on is, who is Jesus? What do we think about Jesus? And how does what we think about Jesus be judged? And so... It's sort of swirling around the center of Christianity. Christianity requires you to make a judgment. And we're not really well fit to do that in our, our kind of our culture today. We it's okay for us to express opinions that don't leave our skin. We can make decisions like I like I like chocolate ice cream, right? But I I can't say you should like chocolate ice cream. You know, to project beyond ourselves, we we become a, a group of people that sort of think what you want to think in there. Just don't allow sort of your sphere of influence to interact with my sphere of influence. And this is not the setting in which in which the scriptures were written. The scriptures were written when just about everybody believed that God was going to judge the world. The judgment, judgment, the notion of judgment was not alien to these people. That what their concern was was not whether there is a judge. Their concern was is how are they going to fall? On which side are they going to fall? When the judge comes. And so we're coming into that sort of text. Now, as I preach this morning, I am going to try to, just so you know, I have in my heart this morning... Uh, the person who might be here who doesn't quite know what to do with Jesus. So, you know, if you're part of the family and you're like, you're in, I'm not really, the word of God is for you, but um, my heart and the message is, is, lends itself a little bit more to the periphery this morning. And I, I trust you understand. Let's take a look at some of these, some of these verses. This is John chapter 12. I'm going to read 44 to 46. This, by the way, is somewhere between Palm Sunday and the Lord's Supper. So it's inside of the last week of Jesus. And this is the last time in in John's gospel that he ever seeks to convince anybody of anything. This is his last message, his last attempt at making a, making a point, drawing someone to his side. Is right here, his last sermon. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. 
I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now we'll stop there for a second. Those three statements, there's three sort of bold statements by Christ. If you've been in the series, if you've been tracking along, none of these should sound brand new, especially, particularly in the Gospel of John. These three things have been said in many, many different ways since the very beginning of the Gospel of John. So you might even think that many of the words of John are sort of being wrapped into this last sermon uh, that Christ is giving. But this is essentially what he's saying, because they are, at the end of the day, bold statements. The first thing he says is, hey, listen, if you believe in me, you're not believing in someone who's different than God the Father. I and the Father are one, is sort of the, the... The push of verse 44, the pure union between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is saying, I carry the message of God. I carry the authority of God. I come with the purpose of God. I speak like God would speak. So that anything I would say, you shouldn't think of as uniquely Jesus. He's saying, it's God. The 45th verse sort of stresses the point a little harder. He says, in fact, if you've seen me, you've seen him. So not only, it's, I'm not just the messenger of God, I am the manifest presence of God. I'm not simply united in message and purpose and authority and all of those things. I and the Father are one. I represent, I manifest the presence of God. And then verse 46 gives us a a sense of why. I've come as light to a world lost in darkness. So that anyone who would see me and believe in me would have life. That's the, that's the, the impetus of verse 47, or excuse me, 46. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Imagine... All the things that sort of come with darkness, just sort of spiritualize them. Take yourself, pluck yourself up, put yourself like in a a wilderness in the middle of the night, all by yourself in darkness. Jesus is saying, I came to save that. The sense of no direction, the sense of helplessness, the insecurity, the lostness from truth. Jesus is saying to those who believe in me, I've come to be their light. Let me rephrase it sort of backwards here. People, all of us, people in general are walking in darkness. And Jesus is saying, I've come. And for those who recognize me, for understand me, find the salvation of God. To see me is to see the Father. If you were, I think you might say it this way, if you're truly seeking after God, you will find him in Jesus. Jesus will validate your search. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, if you're looking for life, if you're looking for light, if you're really on the hunt for God and you find me, your search will end. It, it won't, well, it won't exactly end, it'll anchor. It will stop in that place in Christ and then we'll begin to dig deeper. It, you know, like you were looking for a treasure, there's the part where you're following the map to get to the place and then there's the place where you dig. If you're really looking for God and you find Jesus, you stop and you dig. And you begin to mine the Lord for who he is. Because who God is validates through Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, if, if you're, again, if you're on the sort of the periphery of the faith, I'm not saying you see, should be able to see all of that in these three verses. I'm saying in the Gospel of John, by this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, if you're looking for God, then I should validate. You should feel like you found him. Now, to the seeker, to the person here who may be sitting on the edge, maybe a little skeptical, I want to say this. I'm not peddling our church. I'm talking about Jesus. So, I'm certainly not saying that if you, I wish, I wish I could say this, but we're imperfect. I'm not saying that uh, this church perfectly validates Jesus or that any church for that matter. You know, churches are full of people. What Jesus is saying is, is look at me in my life. Look at my testimony. You know, if you were to read through the Gospel of John, that's what I would say to you, is, is to, to read through the Gospel and to make a determination. At, as, when you finally get to the 12th chapter, say, who is this? That's what he's saying. I'm also, again, to someone who may be a little skeptical of Christianity, I'm not excusing bad religion. And my eyes are open to the massive human imperfections that have historically presented themselves in the Christ-confessing church. I'm not defending that. However, I will say this. Counterfeit Christians do not invalidate Jesus. I'm calling you to Jesus. He's testifying of himself the church of Jesus Christ is people just like you <laughs> coming out of darkness, finding their way to the Lord. So while I do believe, strongly believe that the mark of a true church of Jesus Christ is that they do testify to the one true God, the only pure testimony is the one true God. Examine his testimony. Jesus is saying, if you're really looking for God and you, and you look for me and you find me, you'll feel like you found God. You will anchor your search and start to dig. And it matters. It really matters. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me does not receive my words and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Okay, there's a little bit of a twist here. He says, I didn't come to judge. Listen, if you don't receive me, I'm not judging you. Okay, that's the first thing he says. However, he says, but what you do with my words will judge you in the last day. He says, I didn't come here to judge. I came to save. I came here to save humanity. I came to bring light to a dark world. I'm not trying to play the role of judge right now. However, what you make of me, the way you judge me, will render judgment on you. God is going to judge the way we judge God. That's what he's saying. Jesus did not come for the purpose of judging. But you cannot encounter Christ and say, eh, eh, and escape judgment. That's what he's saying. In other words, it's an encouragement at one level on why he came and it's a caution or a warning on another level of not missing why he came. You might think of it differently because the, the truth is the Jewish tradition was waiting for a Messiah to come. And when that Messiah was going to come, he was going to judge. He was going to bring justice and righteousness finally at last to the land. This is one of the reasons it frustrated the teachers of the law to no end that Jesus would have dinner with sinners. Because he was forsaking his job description. You're not supposed to eat with them. You're supposed to smite them. That was the feeling is they are sinful. And if, you, if, you, if you're the Messiah, we should see justice. That's, that's the thought. But what ended up happening is Jesus did not come once. Jesus is coming twice. The first time he came was with a message of grace and mercy. He did not come to judge. That's what he means here. I, as I am here present, I did not come to judge. When he went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he rode in on a donkey, on a colt. That was the ancient Near East sign of a peaceful entry. That's how a king would come into a city that he was not trying to conquer. He didn't come to judge. In Revelation 19, right, the second to last page of your Bible, he's going to come again, and on that time, he'll be on a white horse a white war horse of judgment. So here, he hasn't come to judge. He's come, God has seen fit. Rather than simply to judge the earth, God has chosen rather to bring a message of mercy and peace and love to people in darkness so that they might find their savior in Jesus Christ and not meet judgment. That's what he's saying. But you don't just get a participation trophy. What you think about Jesus really matters. 
you have to decide. Jesus is saying, you be the judge. Who am I? You be the judge. That's what he's saying in this message. And all of his parables behave this way too. He gives a parable and the parable does what? It pushes us to a decision. You be the judge. So he's saying, listen, my words are not my words. They're his words. And if you see me, you see him. I've come to save and bring mercy and, and, and rescue you from darkness. You be the judge. And be careful how you judge because on the, in the last day, by, you will set the measuring line by which you are judged. It's not like our opinion of God is, is not like our opinion of ice cream. It's not like an opinion. It's a verdict. We are ultimately levying a verdict on who Jesus is. Either he is or he isn't the savior of the world. Then Jesus is saying, be very careful how you handle that. Because it will measure how you're judged in the last day. You might say it this way. This is the purpose, the grand purpose, I think, of Jesus coming this way. I think it's probably realistic to say that most of us know someone who might say something to this effect of, uh, well, I don't go to church. Church is for good people. And if you, (laughs) I'm not a good person. If you knew what I did, you'd know why I don't go to church. Something like that. Someone who thought that they had done something bad enough that it sort of put them out of the grace of God. Well, that's why Jesus came the first time. Jesus came the very first time to let those people know that he's not come as judge. He's come to save. Jesus came to murderers and sinners and liars and adulterers and thieves and idolaters and people who profane the name of Christ and people who do not rest in the Lord and people who shame and dishonor their parents. You name all the Ten Commandments. Jesus came to all of those people and all of those sins to rescue them from darkness. Not to, not, to, not to judge them. There's hope in that. You might say that the only sin you need to be really concerned about is who you think Jesus is. Like in a grand cosmic sense, I don't, like we could preach 10 sermons after this to kind of qualify this, so hear me for what I mean. I don't really think God cares about your sin. God came to save you from it. I mean, God's not shocked by your sin. God's not put off by your sin. For God loved the world, he sent his son to save you from your sin. What God really cares about is whether or not you would be confronted with the person of Jesus Christ and go, eh, I'm a pretty good person. I don't need that. That, that is the sin of the last day. That's what will judge us. What does it mean to believe? Right? I mean, so could it, is it just intellectual? I would say this, particularly for those who are sort of sitting on the edge going, what? Is, okay, so I think that now. Does that magically mean I'm saved? Well, maybe. 
Maybe it does. It would be belief that would result, a belief that would naturally result in change. I once bought a lottery ticket. Do I have time? I do. I am, uh, those of you who know, I'm a strong opponent to the gambling industry, the state-sponsored gambling industry. Um, I th it's one of the areas I'm most socially active. I think, I think it's wicked. But I bought a lottery ticket. <laughs> I was pumping gas at a gas station, and there was this piece of paper taped to the pump, and it said, like, the Pennsylvania lottery, yada, yada, is like 600 whatever bazillion dollars. And I thought, maybe God's telling me to buy a lottery ticket. God never tells us to do that, but I did, okay? I did. This is about 12 years ago. And I was driving from Willow Grove all the way back down here. And the whole way down, I set myself to, what if I win? And so I just started to daydream. I'm going to make sure this doesn't destroy my life. You know, so do I change my phone number first? What do I? I was, I nearly got in three car accidents. It was so bad. I got so intense on this, like, I need to make sure this doesn't kill me. I nearly killed myself on the highway. This, you know, and I had practically convinced myself I'd won by the end, which I didn't, I don't even know if I even followed the numbers. I was so ashamed of myself after all of this. But, and I'm, by the way, I'm not slamming you if you buy a lot. Jesus came to save the world from darkness. Just relax a little bit here. I, what I'm saying is, is there's, there's a level of belief that begins to start creating action. There's a level of cog cognitive participation that results in our joints moving and our hands doing things and our mouth talking and our feet walking. That's the belief. That's what he's talking about is not, okay, it's a nice fact, like the capital of Texas. Nobody cares about that. God doesn't care if you have the correct data about him right. He belief that he's talking about is the sort of thing that comes in as a fact and then begins to push itself out as a verb. Do things. If it's true, then I'm alive. That's what he's saying. The apostles died for him. They believed. It's said of Peter that when they were getting ready to crucify Peter in Rome, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like the Christ. Will you crucify me upside down? And he was crucified upside down because he was not worthy to follow him. That is the kind of thing that comes out of belief. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying if you're on the edge like today, that has to entirely happen. You don't have to walk out of here and martyr. I'm saying the kind of belief that he's talking about is knowledge that is planted and then grows into something. Who you say Jesus is is extremely important. You be the judge of that because it's how you think that will be judged. I'll close with a very familiar passage. John 3.16 Many of you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, that's familiar to the church. It's comfortable in the church. But here's 317, which is, listen to how 17 and 18 
are the same sermon that Jesus just preached. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save the world. That through him the world might be saved. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is not, the question of Christ is not a question like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite ice cream cone? How do you like to express your spirituality? How do you connect with God? The question of who Jesus is, it's not private. God's part of that. And I think it is the only really important question that we have in our life. Let's go ahead and pray. As we do pray, um, if, if you have questions at the end of the service, just I'm happy to visit with you. Pastor Terry's happy to visit with you. There's many good people here. Um, the friend who invited you, I'm sure, would be happy to walk with you. You'd bless them. You'd bless your friend or family to... Pursue this with them. Lord, we come to you um, over this question, Lord. Who are you? And I, I, I first lift up those who confess Christ. I pray, I pray uh, over all of us here who seek to follow you that we are, we are not falling prey to knowledge, but Lord, rather, our faith is being planted and is growing, is, is changing us. Lord, I pray for us. I pray, Lord, over people who believe they're good and so therefore don't need to ask this question. It would be better if they were knew they were sinners than to think they are good. Lord, it is a blessing to be aware of our sins so that we look for some response, some hope. So Lord, I do pray against those here, not against them, on their behalf, for them, those who think they're good. May they see the truth in that, Lord. May they, may they see that they're wandering. finally I do lift up those who are asking intent questions about you I pray it would be honest Lord I trust I trust to know that if they're truly searching for you they'll find you in Christ we lift those here we lift our family and friends up those who are close to our hearts and far from the Lord we ask in your holy in the name of your Son and through the power of your Holy Spirit to move in them, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.